Now, I think we left our Israelite relatives on the road to exile. And it sounds so easy to say they went off into exile. I'm talking about a 500-mile walk <clears throat> along the edges of the Fertile Crescent, part desert, part semi-desert. And after 500 miles of walking, I don't know what will be left of you, and then suddenly there rears up in front of you the gates of Babylon. If you've been to the museum in Berlin, there are the blue-green gates. They're unbelievable. I've never seen them, but I have a, a magnet of them on my refrigerator that <laughs> a, a Bible student brought back. And you've been looking at nothing but sand for weeks and weeks, and suddenly here is this in incredible vision of beauty. And you're being led into a city that has a main street that seems to go on forever, and then it stops, and there is the temple of the great god of the Babylonians, the god Marduk. And you have come from Jerusalem, which had a little temple. You thought it was glorious until you got to Babylon, and then your temple wasn't so great anymore. And so we have this this image of a, a downtrodden people who are brought into this city. The king's palace was built to straddle the river, part on one side, part on the other. At night, instead of worrying about crime, they simply took up all the planks in the bridge, and you couldn't go from one side of the city to the other, kept law and order. This is where you are to live and think and be, and you are absolutely destroyed. You never believed that Jerusalem could be touched. It was God's city. It was God's house. God's word was there, and that is gone. And because the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they have gone down in history, in the Jewish history, as among the most evil of people. They were not necessarily the most evil, but they did this awful deed. Just, you know, just hold on to that particular piece. You are used to, as a Jerusalemite, going up to the temple to say your prayers. There is no temple. You have no place to pray. The priests are not there. They have no function. Many of them were killed in the final battles, and that's it. How do you pray to your God in a foreign land? Where do you, what do you do? I, I can only begin to think of some of the incredible bewilderment. And that is why I would recommend at some point you go to what I call the heartbreak psalm, Psalm 137. Because one day, one Sabbath day, just looking for somebody who might have believed as you did, you go down to the banks of the river. At least that was the place where you knew God's finger must have been because it was God's creation. God made the river, God made the trees. And you find some fellow Jews there, and together you weep. And maybe some Babylonians come by and the psalmist says to us in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. And on the willows there, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors for mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastatrix, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. And happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. And we always get a little aghast when we come to that last verse. But we have to remind ourselves of this is an ancient piece of poetry and this is an ancient curse. And it is a way of saying, notice, if they take your little ones and dash them against the rock, you will have no successors, right? So the curse is saying, may there not be another generation that grows up to do the evil you have done. Oh, that's a little bit better than just, you know, bashing out the baby's brains here. Uh, I know very often in our ultra-sensitive modern world, when this psalm is printed, that last piece of the verse is left off. Um, in my own community, of course, when we said evening prayer, this comes up regularly. And when we said our prayers in Latin before Vatican II, it didn't matter because nobody was paying that much attention anyway. <laughs> but then we suddenly got into English, see? And I was in chapel one night, and behind me in the pew was one of our very dear elderly sisters. She was a native of Ireland, Sister Mary Patricia. And she had reached the point in her aging where frequently what was in her heart she said out loud. <laughs> and so as we came to the end of this psalm and said these words, I could hear Mary Patricia saying, and dear Lord, I don't mean a word of it. <laughs> So we could maybe take that to heart, and that would be okay also. You can agree with Mary Patricia on that one, all right? But what we've got here is something very important, because it says the Israelites are coming together, looking for some way, somewhere, somehow to pray. And then it would seem to me, and this is where we now have a great gap, there is no scripture that covers what went on during at least 40 years of exile. But we know the end result, so if I give you the end result, I have to find a way to get there, don't I? So let me tell you what I think happened. I think one time when they were here on the banks of the river, they found somebody from one of those 10 lost tribes of Israel. Don't you think some of them must have drifted down some highway somewhere? And they began to talk about the stories their grandmothers used to tell them. And somebody talked about the story Grandma used to tell about how the world came into being. There was nothing there, and it was confusion and chaos. And then God began to speak. And through the power of the word of God, things came into being. And God made the whole world. And you listened. That's God calling. Answer <laughs> <laughs> it. And you listened, and then you said, but. I have, a, my grandma told me the story of where the world came from, and it wasn't like that. In my story, 
There was a beautiful garden, and God made a man and put him in the garden, and he was lonesome. And he couldn't talk to any of the animals, although he tried. And then God put him to sleep, and God made a woman just like him. And suddenly, you two people from different parts of Israel, you've got two creation stories, haven't you? And somebody said, you know, if this happens again, we might lose these stories. Maybe we should start to write them down. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 came into being. And I love our biblical ancestors because they didn't leave out either of them. And so they began to write down their stories. And then, like you, they wanted to know maybe what they meant. And from somewhere in your ranks, there was someone who became kind of automatically the teacher of the group. And so you use the Hebrew word for teacher for him. You might have called him rabbi. And then on the Sabbath day, you made it your custom to go to this same spot on the riverbank, and 20 people from your neighborhood of Jerusalem met there with you, and every week you either told a remembered story from grandma's knees, or you read a part of a scroll that had been written down, and, you be, and then you prayed for each other, and you prayed for those who were back home in Jerusalem. Can you begin to see how the Bible is becoming a written book. And we know, scholars are convinced, that this is when the writing of the Old Testament came into being, most of it. Some of it had been written before, some of the annals of the kings, but other parts are remembered here. Some of you remembered hearing Jeremiah in the courtyard of the temple. I remember the day he talked about the new covenant, and so you share that which is why some, I think, some of the prophets, it seems as if their books are put together of pieces glued here and there. And it's because this is the way we remembered it. It's not a perfectly logical order. But out of this period of exile, we are now little by little developing something that is incredible. And that something is, when the exile is over, they are going to have the word of God on scrolls. It won't be a nice book like this with a zipper around it, but it'll be a scroll. And then somebody says, but just think, we never again can lose the word of God. It won't be locked in the Ark of the Covenant up in the temple. Wherever I go, this word can go with me. And more and more, the interpretation, a comment on that word is important. Because they realize if the word of God is going to live, it has to apply to our life here and now. And as they remember, that key word I talked about last night, they begin to remember the goodness of God to them. And they kind of stiffen up their spinal cords for the future, that this is not the end of us. And they settle there, and they begin to set up a new life, a life which has a certain religious dimension to it. They become economically viable. Many of them had been farmers, sheep herders. They no longer have that kind of land. So they become business people, because Babylon is a hugely important 
commercial city. So their life reorients in another way. They don't need to go to the temple to find the word of God. They can find the word of God anywhere there's somebody with a memory or a scroll. And their whole religious orientation shifts just a little bit. Does that make sense to you? Any questions? Because this is a vitally important moment, I think, in the, in the history of religious growth and development. Because this is where our, our Bible begins to be put together. It's one of the blessings that comes out of the horror, which was the Babylonian exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. So I'll have questions on that right now. Yes? Roughly, we believe it's about 40 years. We know the final group marched into exile, went off in 587 BC, and they come back home somewhere in the 540s. That's a very good question. And that's time for one generation to die and for another generation to be born. And so if you were born in the exile of Babylon, you don't know Jerusalem. You don't know the temple. You never heard a prophet. And that's going to be important also for what decisions you're going to make about your future. The temple priesthood has disappeared. There are probably a few now elderly priests still a part of the group, but they have no function. You can't offer sacrifice without a temple. That's the only purpose of a temple, is to have an altar and a place of sacrifice. And their temple is gone, destroyed. And it's a highly, highly important symbol. So what we really have going on here in Babylon is an entire upheaval in the way God's people have thought about God, believed in God, prayed for God, lived in God's favor. I mean, it is an incredible religious time that we really can't quite imagine. Um, one religious, religious author has said re recently and that every 500 years, religions should have a gigantic rummage sale <laughs> and get rid of the accretions of the ages and go back and ask basic questions as to why we do thus and so. And there's a point to be made there. This, this happens roughly 500 years after the temple has been built. And Israel has a religion which was up until this destruction, more or less temple-centered. Because that was the only place in all of Israel that you could offer a sacrifice. And while there were Jews who lived elsewhere, scattered around the other countries in the Mediterranean, there was no sacrifice unless you went to the temple. Well, now they are living in a non-sacrificial era because the temple isn't. It's a heap of rubble in the hands of enemies. So what are we going to do? And so they have time to sit down and think. And out of every disaster, and I'm sure those of you who survived Harvey and similar things, Yes, it was a horrible time, but did anything good happen at all? And sometimes people can find a good something. 
And what I'm attempting to say is that here there is something good happening because another way of worshiping God comes into being, which persists to this day because the Jews of this day are all synagogue-oriented for reasons that we will get to later. There is no temple anywhere in the Jewish world. Some of the synagogues use that term, but it's a memory term. No, that's a very interesting thing about these conquests. They never cared who or what you worshipped. Just don't interfere with them. <laughs> so the Babylonians said, don't bother us. We want nothing from you. And if what you are doing isn't interfering with our government, then you make your own life here in exile. It's a very interesting way to look at a conquered people. Nobody was in a concentration camp. They weren't rounded up. But they simply did not have a visa to travel beyond the borders of the city of Babylon, which is outside about, I don't know, 40, 50 miles from Baghdad today. This lesson about the importance of Babylon is one that our soldiers should have had before we got ourselves involved in the Mideast, because our soldiers were using parts of the ruins of the city of Babylon to fill sandbags. They had no idea of the culture of the country. So, you know, the, it, it, it's kind of startling the way the, the pieces of the world come together. Before I go on, last chance, questions? We have no idea. Uh, it's a great question because it deserves to have a better answer and the, is we have very little bits and pieces of Ezekiel's life. Uh, we know there is a Mrs. Ezekiel. He calls her the delight of his eyes. When she dies, he is not to mourn her death because there's something greater to mourn, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. So he is kind of a living witness but what he actually does in Babylon, we honestly do not know. The same thing is back in Jerusalem, we don't have a full accounting of what Jeremiah does. We do know that the Babylonian governor in Jerusalem becomes a friend of Jeremiah and pretty much gives him free reign to come and go. And Jeremiah is doing his very best, some of the last chapters of Jeremiah show this, to encourage those who are there in the ruins to you know, pull up their socks and we have to get on with living. This is not the end of the world. Uh, and he finally is kind of kidnapped by his own fellow Jews who have remained behind and he's murdered by them. Jeremiah is killed by his own people, so he will never see the world of which, but he's preaching to the very end. So we don't honestly know how their religious life off here in Babylon grew and developed. We only know the end product of it. So much of what I have told you is in a certain sense, 
the surmise of scholars who have been working to put this together. And so when you see what happened at the end and you saw what happened before, then you have to kind of make up the pieces that go in the middle. But it, to me, it makes perfect sense that something, as they shared memory, somebody said, write this down. Because we're going to see what happens as a result of this, which makes it even seem more true to me. Yes? Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written years, when they were discovered years and years ago. The, the oldest of the Dead Sea Scrolls is an almost totally complete Isaiah, which dates from roughly this period, just a little bit after the Babylonian exile. So they were valid. Uh, oh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's no question they're valid. Will they ever be put in our Bibles? Uh, well, there are bits and pieces of what we've got already. Okay. That's, that's the most valuable part of them. They have found among those crumbling scrolls bits and pieces of every book of the Bible except one. Every book of the Old Testament. Does anybody know what the one book is that's not represented? Esther. The book of Esther in the original Hebrew has no mention of God. And therefore, the Jews who are, were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls did not have it in their library. They're still working on the bits and pieces because what they found was the junk closet, really. They found the cave where, as these scrolls could no longer safely be rolled and unrolled, but because they held the word of God, they just put them in, an empty, in a cave to crumble away and go back into dust. So when that little boy found them in 1947, they were already almost 2,000 years old, some of them, some of them even older. So the very process of attempting to unroll them just made more pieces. I mean, you can see what I'm talking about. It's incredibly complex. So, and then of course, there were all sorts of scholarly wars going on among the scholars. But there are, so there are two kinds of Dead Sea Scrolls. There are all of these bits and pieces that obviously belong to the library of this group of Jews who after the exile, so they're just after this exile period, were waiting for the Messiah. Because now people said, if Jerusalem is gone, and if we've lost the temple, now this is the moment when the Messiah is coming. And they called him the teacher of righteousness. So they were a little Jewish sect waiting there. It was their library. And then other parts of that are their rules for living together how you should behave in a group, wait your turn when everybody is talking. If you talk out of turn, you are exiled from the group for I don't know how many days till you can come back in and you only get you know a little soup and nothing else at lunch because you were a bad person. I mean, it's all practical living. The rules for being a monk at Qumran. Anyone interested in the process of the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the challenges of that? Uh, you can Google Dead Sea Scrolls National Geographic. They did a recent, not too long ago, uh, magazine, and it's fascinating the politics and the scientific way they're trying to. Sometimes they can x ray behind the roll and see what's in it without having to destroy it. So it's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, marvelous things modern science can do. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. 
We're oh, way over there. Sorry about that. The term son of man, that's a very important question. It is used several places. Uh, God seems to use it in talking to Ezekiel many times. Uh, he calls him son of man, stand up. And it's an emphasis on his humanity. And it also is an emphasis upon the fact that he is a creature of God. Um, but there are other places scattered here and there in the Bible where that term is used for a human being. It's simply emphasizing the humanness of the person. That, in other words, because there was also this fairly common belief, not just among the Jews, but among other peoples, that there were angels out here all around us, and that some, of, some people tried to claim they were sons of the angels. So son of man, each of us could use that in a sense for ourselves. It's another way of saying human being in Hebrew. But when he has that vision of one who appears as a son of man. It's, it, it's a, a, I see what you're getting at. It's a vision of one who could possibly be the Messiah. It could possibly be God. Uh, it's a, as I said, Ezekiel is so incredibly complex, but that well, some scholars feel as well, a glimpse possibly into that when the Messiah came, he would really literally come among us as one of us. And Ezekiel does use that, right. So thank you. Yes, sir. Is, is the captivity the beginning of the institution of the synagogue? Yes, absolutely. In this, no, there was no synagogue, no such concept even. Thank you for asking that, because I need to get that across. If the synagogue has a birthplace, it's born here in Babylon. We so identify it with Judaism today that we think it just has to be. It always was. Well, no, it always wasn't at all. The Jews had no worship except when they went up to the temple. There was not a weekly worship as we've come to know through synagogue presence. Does that make sense? It forces us to rethink. They were a very, we don't know what they did with their Sabbath day when they had no particular religious framework for their Sabbath day. Because I say to you, Jew Sabbath, and you say to yourself, synagogue. <laughs> and that only happens during the exile. And then they're going to, for reasons that we're going to get to, they're going to hold on to it. Good. Yes. Sister Carol, it seems that it was necessary for Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed in order for God to become personal. Is, is that what you're saying? Uh, I can see why you're saying it. It's our almost justifying what happened. It's, it's our Pollyanna uh, finding something very good in what was a terrible disaster. Um, among our Jewish brothers, the destruction of Jerusalem is observed as a day of mourning each year. Usually it comes sometime in July. Some calendars put it on there as a date. But we see the good that comes out of it because it, it, it takes 
a religion that was much more centered on going up and finding God up there. And we're getting ready for what Jeremiah talked about, the new covenant which we have each got to find the time and the place to write within our hearts. Okay on that? I'll take a step forward. Step forward is Babylonian Empire got conquered. <laughs> All right. One great empire conquers another and it in turn will lose itself. And the new conqueror comes out of, of all places, Persia, Iran today. <coughs> and out of Iran comes one of the most incredible figures to walk our earth, the conqueror Cyrus of Persia. An incredibly enlightened, fascinating figure. He kind of wormed his way in coming down from the north through what we would call Iraq today, conquers Babylon, and now it's his. And he has many incredibly uh, humane tendencies. And he looks at this empire which he has just conquered, and now it is all his, and he says, what have I got? I have conquered people, conquered people, conquered people everywhere. How can I ever do anything without doing something about all these conquered people? So he sat down and thought about it, and he came up with a very bright idea. And he issued an edict, and this is somewhere in the 540s before Christ, that any of you conquered peoples who would like to go home, go. I will give you visas, or the equivalent, whatever it is. You will have the right to go home, and I will give you money so that you can rebuild the altars of your gods. And I ask but one thing, that you pray for me on those altars when you have them built. Sound good to you? Would you go? The Jews have a problem. Think about it. You've been over here now for 40 years. You were 30 when you left home. How old are you now? 70? Do you want to go back and start shifting the rubble of your ruined city to rebuild it? Has anybody moved into your house if it survived? How are you going to earn a living? You have set up a nice little business, two streets down below the temple of Marduk. You sell souvenirs down there. <laughs> and your son is in business with you. Your children have been born in Babylon. Do they want to go back? Your grandchildren only vaguely heard of Jerusalem as someplace grandma and grandpa used to talk about. Do they want to go back? And you know, it's sort of um, an incredible answer to that old thing, you know, I've always said, and I know you've heard me say it, be careful what you pray for, you might get it. Well, they prayed that they could one day go home to Jerusalem, and now Cyrus says go. And there are all of these problems. Somebody's arthritis is too bad and they can't walk for 500 miles back home, okay? Somebody else has no memory, they were too young when they left. 
Some of the very religiously fervent can only dream of going back. Their whole life has been, I've got to go back to Jerusalem, and so this is my moment I want to go. Some are such ardent patriots that they have to go back to their land because God had given it to them once and they want to go back and reclaim it. And so a motley answer is the result of Cyrus's decree. And we can probably say that the religiously fervent, the young adventurers, got nothing to lose, you know, those are the ones who went west with the gold rush in this country. What have we got to lose? Let's go back. It's going to be fun. We'll build the city from the ground up. Some of those who were unemployed or underemployed anyway, well, we might as well go back and shift stones there as stay on here. Some of those who never gave up their memories have got to go back. Some of those who never saw it but thought they would like to see it, they decide to go back. So it's a very ragtag peculiar bunch. It's not as many people as we might think. And underlying this runs this great truth. Why are we going back? We don't have to go back any longer to stand in the presence of the Word of God because we have the Word of God with us right now. Any place we go, we Jews in this world, God can go with us. We don't need to go back and rebuild a house for the Ark of the Covenant. It's okay. We've got it. We can go anywhere we want on this earth and take God with us, and we now know that God is mobile. And therefore, we have not been God-less for these 40 years. And so some of them decide not to go back. Some of the most fervent among them they don't need Jerusalem anymore. And so this helter-skelter kind of group gets itself together, and Cyrus is true to his promises. And they set out for Jerusalem, some of them fueled by dreams, some of them fueled by memories, and some of them just on fire for a great adventure. And there wasn't anybody there recording it all on their cell phones and taking selfies along the way. <laughs> if only we had had some idea, because we can only begin to imagine what it was like as they began to near the walls of Jerusalem and all they could see was rubble. Now, I've talked about walls a number of times. Please remember, in the ancient world, you did not have a city unless you had city walls. You were not safe unless there was a wall. The idea of an open city, wall-less, was unbelievable. In Jerusalem, the walls are piles of rubble, and the city is a pile of rubble. And it was a long walk back. And I don't know how many skilled laborers they have. And they come into this city, these religiously fervent, some of these old, old people with dreams of what that temple was like when they were young. I don't know if you've ever, any of us who have gotten beyond the age of 30, uh, have you ever gone back to some place you knew as a child and discovered how small it was? Yes. Have you had that experience? I remember going back. I back, went back one time to the, the woods, the big forest I used to play in when I was eight years old. 
well, you know, it's nine and a half trees. <laughs> Couldn't believe that my woods had shrunk to that size. And of course, it hadn't shrunk at all. It was the same woods. Well, I think there must have been a great many disillusioned people as they came to this. And of course, if the houses that grandma had left, if that house was still standing, has somebody else moved in? Well, of course, nature abhors a vacuum. So they're gonna to have to kind of fight and struggle to come in to this city. And then what do they have to do? The city has got to be rebuilt. And while they came back, and many of them were religiously fervent, they were very good people. They wanted that temple rebuilt. They could not start by rebuilding the temple. They had to start by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the task was absolutely monumental. They could not even begin to think about what it might be until they saw it and they realized how absolutely impossible it was. And then they're in a total panic. And so they begin to write letters back to those who didn't go anyplace. And I think it's interesting that the letters on that wonderful postal system, which Assyria had set up, which Babylon continued, the postal system is still there. And one of the letters comes back to an exile who did not leave his very cushy job. And that exile is a Jew by the name of Ezra. And Ezra had an excellent job in Babylon, so I could see why he wouldn't want to go back. All right, he was serving the king. He was working in the palace as a kind of uh, cupbearer, shall we say. And um, he and a fellow Jew by the name of Nehemiah had made a little deal that if one of them went back, the other one would send letters and let him know how things were. And so Ezra does go, finally, to Jerusalem, and he is just absolutely laid low at the desolation. He doesn't know what to do. So he sends a letter back to his friend Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is working in the presence of the king. King Artaxerxes is in charge at that moment. And he brings the cup into his king, and he is uh, very sad. And you didn't go to your king with a sad face unless you wanted the king to ask why. And so the king asks him why. He says, why is your face sad since you're not sick? And obviously, if you're carrying the cup, you're not sick. This can only be sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah says, yes. May the king live forever. And then he says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said, what do you request? And Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor with you, I ask you to send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. And the king says, and how long will you be gone? And will you return? And the king was pleased with my answer, for I set him a date. And so I asked says Nehemiah, for letters, which are like visas, to the governors of the provinces that they might grant me passage along the way. 
and a letter to the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber so that I might rebuild the gates of Jerusalem. And I set out. I have no idea how long it took Nehemiah to wend his way from Babylon back to his friend Ezra waiting in Jerusalem. But what I love is that I'm pretty sure he must have come by camel. I imagine, I hope he rented a camel. But it says, and so I came to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. I think he had camel lag <laughs> or whatever you would get if you had been on the road for weeks on time and at a time on a camel. And then after his three days rest, he gets up at night. I, I find this, Hollywood missed this whole thing. And he takes a few men and he says, I told no one what God had put it in my heart to do. And he took a donkey and he went out with the sure-footed donkey at night, starlight. And he went round the crumbled walls of Jerusalem, picking his path over the heaps of stone and counting off what needed to be done and asking himself, I am sure, every inch of the way, what can we do? Can one man, 10 men, 100 men, how can we put this together? And then he came back and went to his room and sat down and prayed. And then he called an assembly of Israel to listen to him. He was only stopped by a pile of rubble that was so big the donkey couldn't get over it. Now why hasn't Cecil B. DeMille's successor done this movie? Can you see this man looking, picking his way through the rubble? What shall we do with the ruins of Jerusalem? Come back tomorrow night and find out. <laughs> but before, before we go away, are there any questions? Yes. So was Jerusalem essentially unoccupied at all? They didn't move people from one place into there? They, they didn't move them specifically into the city. What happened was the people left, for example, in Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. They slithered on down and took over. So Jerusalem was semi-occupied, but by mostly non-functioning Jews. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be a real mess, a real mess. Yes? So um, Assyria conquered it. So has it just, who owns it now, basically? <laughs> Nobody? Everybody? Uh, you mean the, the when Nehemiah comes back? Down. It's now Cyrus of Persia. It's, this is Persian. Okay. And this is the interlude, for those of you who know your history, Persia will be followed by the next great conqueror, who at this moment is dot on the horizon, and it will be the Greek world and Alexander. This part of the world has always had a war. Somebody's always conquering it. So at the moment, this is Persian territory. The, this moment where I'm leaving us until tomorrow night. Come back tomorrow night, we'll see if we ever get Jerusalem rebuilt, all right? That is the whole reason why when 
whoever wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, and they, of course, they were thinly talking about Rome at the time. They couldn't use those words. When they looked for the worst enemy they could possibly think of, that worst enemy was Babylon, only because Babylon is the only enemy who destroyed their temple. And that's why Babylon becomes the synonym for horror in the mind of all of the New Testament writers. Yes, it is not because they were the most evil empire ever in the world, but they destroyed the temple. They were the only ones who did until we get a second temple, but that's tomorrow night. All right, see, I, I have to keep you dangling or you won't come back. Thank you.